Welcome to the Mission North Shore podcast. If you'd like to know more about our ministry here at the Mission, visit us online at www.themissionnorthshore.org. Thanks for listening. God bless. As you well know, we are continuing through our study of the book of Acts, and we are in the midst of Paul's third missionary journey. And um, we're jumping a little bit forward today because we are involved in the sending out of the Woolwine family today. And so we're going to skip just a a chapter forward to a text that uh, fits a little bit better and is a little bit more relevant to our sending of them this morning. And we'll jump back and catch the end of chapter 19 later on. So to fill in the blanks as we are jumping a little bit forward into Acts chapter 20, when we left off, if you remember, Paul was in the city of Ephesus and he had been there preaching in the synagogue. And when he had worn out his welcome there in the synagogue of Ephesus and some became hardened of heart to the gospel, as Zach spoke about, he took then this group of faithful disciples, those that had come to the Lord and said, we want to follow Jesus. He took them aside and he began to pour into them and disciple and mentor them individually. So it says for some two years, he poured in to these disciples of Ephesus that wanted to follow, follow Jesus. Does anybody remember what the result was of him in discipling and pouring into this group of disciples? Anybody? Exactly, Lola. You're amazing and awesome and wonderful. All who lived in Asia heard the word of the Lord. And we pointed out the fact that it wasn't that Paul went all over Asia and preached the gospel, but who went? Those who he had discipled. And we said the same thing here. The whole North Shore and the island of Oahu is not going to be reached by me or Butch or a couple of guys that, that are on staff. It's going to be reached when the disciples of Jesus grab a hold of the word of God and go and reach those around them. And so that's what we talked about last week. And of course, typical to um, Paul's ministry almost everywhere that he went, uh, there was revival, right, in the town of Ephesus, but there was also a riot in the town of Ephesus. Pretty much everywhere Paul went, there was revival among some and riot among others, and that happened in the town of Ephesus. And we'll skip back to chapter 19 and pick that up later. And what happened was as Paul left Ephesus because of this riot that broke out, he continued on his missionary journey. He went through a little bit more of Asia Minor. We have a a little bit of a map just in case you're curious. He went through Asia Minor. You can see Ephesus there at the kind of lower left portion of Asia. And he went through the rest of Asia Minor over to Macedonia, traveled down to Greece, and then back around, just pretty much tracking around the coast of the Aegean Sea, and then decided he was headed for Jerusalem. And as he is headed for Jerusalem, he's on a ship, he's passing by the town of, or stopping in the town of Miletus on his way to Jerusalem. And from the town of Miletus, he's on a cargo ship. I'm sure they had to offload some cargo and then onload some cargo. So it took a little bit of time. And as he's stuck here in the town of Miletus, he then sends for the disciples of Ephesus. Now, Ephesus is only about 30 miles away from Miletus. So he sends for the elders of Ephesus to come down and meet him in Miletus. And that's where we're going to pick up this morning in Acts chapter 20. This is Paul's farewell to these elders of Ephesus. We're going to find out later in the chapter 20 that he's never going to see them again. He knows that and tells that to them. 
But this is his farewell to these guys. So let's pick up Acts chapter 20, beginning in verse 17. And it says, From Miletus he sent to Ephesus to call the elders to uh, the elders of the church to him. And when they had come to him, he said to them, You yourselves know from the first day that I set foot in Asia how I was with you the whole time. He's asking them to remember how he acted, how he lived among them. He says, you yourselves know from, from the first day I was in Asia how I was with you the whole time, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials which came upon me through the plot of the Jews and how I did not shrink back from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you publicly and from house to house and solemnly testifying both to Jews and Greeks of the repentance towards God and faith in our Lord Jesus. And as I read that first kind of introductory part of Paul's message to these uh, Ephesian elders, it struck me what an amazing statement that he's able to say to these guys that have spent three years with him, guys that now know him very well, that he's been close to for some three years. He calls them, at the introduction to his his farewell to them, he calls them to look at his character. He's saying, guys, you know how I've been when I was with you. And had he not had that character, they would have said, well, no, Paul, we, we didn't really see that in you. We actually didn't appreciate your visit at all. We found you, you know, this way or that way or whatever. But he's able to, because of his integrity and his love for these Ephesians, and because it's evident to them, he's able to come to them and say, guys, you guys know how I was among you. You you know, you saw my life. And then what Paul does is in verse 19 through 21, he lists out several of the things that they should have been able to see in him, that, that he was a servant of the Lord for their sake, that he, was, that he was humble before them, meaning he wasn't seeking his own glory or his own status. He was actually humble before them, and they should have been able to see that in him, that, that he was there with them in tears. That's quite a statement. For him to say, guys, you, you know how I have been with you. I've been in tears over you guys, and you know this. You know of my love. You know of my care. You know that it's evident to you through, through the tears I, I, I cried over you guys. And he says, even through persecution, I, I was faithful. And he says, I didn't shrink back from declaring to you the truth of Jesus, that, that you need faith and repentance. He's saying, I didn't soft pedal the gospel with you guys. I wasn't trying to appease what you wanted to hear. He says, I told you the straight up truth when I was with you. And I thought to myself, what a great thing to be able to say to the people that are close to you that have observed your life, that have observed your faith. What an amazing thing. And and I found it this week as I thought about this a bit convicting. What a challenge. Like to ask ourselves, can we say this to the people that are around us on a regular basis, to your coworkers, to your neighbors, to the people that you interact with all the time? Can we walk up to them and say, you know how I've lived among you. You've seen my life. You've heard me. You know my character. Church, would that work for us or against us? 
maybe we don't want people to think about how we've been around them. Maybe we don't want to draw attention to that. It was was quite convicting for me to think along those lines. Paul, he's able to stand here with a clear conscience before these Ephesian elders and say, guys, guys, you guys know my character. You know how I've been among you. And then in verse 22, he tells him what's going on. Much like Zach and Anna did this morning, where they're going and what they're doing. That's what he tells in, in verse 22. He says, now I'm bound by the Spirit. He says, I know I'm called. I'm bound by the Spirit. And I'm on my way to Jerusalem, not knowing what's going to happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit solemnly testifies to me in every city, saying that bonds and afflictions await me. Guys, that's heavy right there, right? We've talked a lot here as we've been going through the book of Acts. We've been talking a lot about hearing the voice of the Spirit, being led by the Spirit, being obedient and going to where the Spirit calls us. But we haven't seen anything this heavy yet. The Holy Spirit just told Paul, he's like, I'm sending you to Jerusalem. And at the same time told him, it's about to get really, really difficult. The Holy Spirit told him, bonds and afflictions are awaiting you. The New Living Translation says, jail and suffering lies ahead for you. Think about that for just a second. What what if you heard that? What if the Holy Spirit said to you, you have a God-ordained mission, like like I have a plan and a purpose for your life. This is what it is. Go to this location. But it's going to be super tough. Like like jail and suffering is, is waiting for you. Thought about that for a little bit too. What would I do? What would you do if you heard that same calling that that Paul heard? What would you do with that? I mean, conventional wisdom says steer clear of Jerusalem, right? Like, I want you to go to Jerusalem, and there you're going to be in jail and affliction. Well, easy answer. I just don't go to Jerusalem, right? And I avoid jail and and steer clear. That's what conventional wisdom would say. Find a safe place and hold up there somewhere that feels super secure. Right? And in our human nature, that, that's kind of what we do. We gravitate, don't we, to places of ease and comfort and security. A lot of Christians think that way. A lot of Christians live that way, looking for ease and comfort and security. They, they have this idea that Jesus went to the cross to make their lives simple and easy and comfortable. Like a lot of times... We live that way within the church. And a lot of times, that's the mentality within the church. It was, I was talking with Zach over this last week, and we were talking about some of the things that people have been saying to him as he's been traveling around a little bit on the mainland and then here in Hawaii, sharing with some of the churches where he's going and what he's doing. And we were talking about some of the things that the church people said. As he would get up and say, hey, we're, we're going to this very difficult location in northern Africa, and it's dangerous, and, and people want to kill you there, and all these things. And, and so he's telling people this, and, and he was sharing with me some of the responses of the church. And he said, one guy came up to him, and he said, or actually sent him a letter, rather, sent him a letter saying that he is praying, this man is praying that God will remove this calling from the Woolwine family so that he doesn't have to go because it's too dangerous for him to go there. 
That, that's the way he was thinking. He was thinking, oh, this is horrible. That these poor people have to go to this location. And, and, and so we see within the church there was this mentality of a guy that values this ease and comfort and security over the calling of Christ to, to be what we were meant to be to the world. And I thought to myself, well, that's largely probably why there's 40% of the world right now that sits without the gospel because so many of us within the church think that way. Now, Zach's a far nicer guy than I am, but my suggestion to him was write him back and tell him, thank you for praying for me, but I've actually been praying the opposite, that you would come with me to this very dangerous location. But he's too nice to do things like that. He was also telling me of a lady last weekend who was speaking at a, a church here in town. And, and she came up and she said, all right, you're going to go over there, but if it gets hard, please just come back. Like, like if you're going to be a missionary in the Muslim world, and if it happens to get hard, just please, please come back. And, and I told her, this is what I told him. I said, I sure am glad that Jesus didn't do that when he came on mission to save us. You know, could you imagine that conversation between God the Father and God the Son? I'm sending you in the world to redeem these people, but if it gets hard, you know, I mean, when you get down there to sinful humanity, if they give you a hard time, just come on back. Don't, don't bother. I sure am glad that didn't happen with Jesus. And I was in uh, Idaho with some friends of ours. Uh, Keijan Ashton, who had been a part of our church for a long time. Many of you guys know Keijan Ashton. They've got a big heart for Pakistan and had gone to Pakistan several times. We helped send them and commissioned them on a Sunday much like this. And, and we were talking about missions. His wife is still quite involved with, with mission stuff in Pakistan. And he was telling me something that a lady told him when we commissioned him to go to Pakistan. And he said that, that the lady came up and said, why in the world would you risk your life to take the gospel to those kind of people, the, those terrorist kind of people over there, right? That, that's within the church. There's, now, we would expect that the world would say that, right? Like, why would you bother? But that was within the church. That, that's from people that actually have a Bible in their hands. And so what we see is there is a chance, and of course, that's just a select few within the church. This is not an indictment upon the church and everybody here, but it is gives us a little bit of the mentality that can creep into the church that there's this disconnect among some Christians. In their heart and their mind, there's this disconnect from that which Christ called us to be in this world. That somewhere along the way, some of us have forgotten what Jesus said, it means to be a disciple and a follower of his. Look at what he said. It's a very familiar verse. Luke chapter 9, verse 23. And I want you to notice to whom he's speaking. Jesus, he was saying it to who? Them all. He wasn't just speaking to the 12 disciples that he had gathered together. He was speaking to everybody that was there and willing to listen. And what did he say to them? If anyone wishes to come after me. Anyone, anybody's going to be my follower. He must deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. What he's saying, what he means here, is that there's got to be a dying to self and a living self-sacrificially for the souls of the lost. 
That's what Jesus did when he carried his cross up Calvary, was it not? And so in a very real way, that's what he's calling us to as well. But far too often in the American church today, there's become this disconnect between what Jesus literally said and the Jesus that we've fabricated that only exists to provide for us ease and safety and comfort. The whole prosperity gospel that has gotten into the church. And that whole attitude that exists that says, well, if it gets tough over there, just come on back. And so what Paul says is he says, I know what's going on. I know where I'm supposed to go. I'm going to Jerusalem, but I also know that the Holy Spirit has testified that it's going to be very, very difficult. There's going to be bonds and afflictions. But then he explains why he's willing to go. Look at verse 24 with me. Here's why he'll go. He says, but I do not consider my life of any account as dear to myself so that I may finish my course. He says, I've got a course. I've got a race to run. He says, I'm going to finish my course, the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus, to testify solemnly of the gospel of the grace of God. I like the way uh, the New Living Translation puts this verse. We have it right here. He says it this way. But my life is worth nothing to me unless I use it for finishing the work assigned to me by the Lord Jesus, the work of telling others the good news about the wonderful grace of God. What is Paul saying here? He's saying that his earthly life is of no value and no importance to him unless he's able to fulfill the calling that God has put upon his life. Guys, that's a deep understanding of this whole concept that we only have one life to live. Like, like Zach was saying, I've only got this one candle. Where am I going to burn it? We've only got this one life and it's got a time limit on it. There's no do-overs and there's no rewind to it. And most of the world that we live in focuses on what they can get in the here and now, don't they? That's, and, and it's easy for us to do. It's easy for me to do. What can I get? What can I do in the here and the now? But Paul is operating with this deep eternal perspective. That's what I want us to hear this morning. That we, the church, need an eternal perspective. First and foremost, in our hearts and our minds, because we're never going to understand what Paul's saying in verse 24 if we ourselves don't have that eternal perspective. We're not going to understand the thoughts that he has, the focus that he has, the motivation and the hope that he has that is beyond this world. He's not focused on this world. He's focused on the eternal promises of God Almighty. It's not just about the here and the now. And that's why Paul would write to the Corinthian church when he was trying to explain how important the resurrection is to him. He said, if we have hoped in Christ, in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. He's saying if we're just doing it for the here and the now, if our Christianity is nothing more than this right here, we're in sad, sad shape, aren't we? But then he goes on to explain that Christ did rise from the grave. 
Just as Jesus said, just as, as hundreds of years of Old Testament prophecy said, he rose from the grave to prove that he has power over the grave and that he alone has defeated death and that he alone can offer eternal life. And so it's important that we, a church, that hold this book that's all about eternity in our hands, have an eternal perspective in our hearts and in our minds. Because if we don't, verse 24 doesn't make any sense to us. The, the book of Acts that we've been studying won't make any sense to us. Missions, world missions, as we're talking about this morning, what Zach and Anna are doing won't make any sense to us if we don't have an eternal perspective. And, and frankly, Jesus won't either. Jesus won't make any sense to us if we don't have that eternal perspective in our hearts and our minds. He was the greatest of all missionaries. He had the greatest of eternal perspectives. He came, left heaven, came to earth for our souls. He had the, the fullest of eternal perspective. And, and Scripture calls us to have that, that, that we're to have our hearts and our minds set on things above. Look at what it says, Colossians chapter 3, verse 2. It's pretty clear. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things of earth. That's not always that easy to do, is it? Because we often get our hearts so tangled around the things on this earth. But the calling is what? Set your mind on the things above, not on the things of earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ and God. And when Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. But so often, we get so tangled up in and attached to and our hearts get wrapped around the things of this earth. That's not the calling of Scripture. And that wasn't the heart of Paul. He, his heart and his mind was set on eternity. And that's why he says in our text, verse 24, my life is worth nothing to me unless I use it for finishing the work assigned to me by the Lord Jesus, the work of telling others the good news of the wonderful grace of God. Like, could I say that same thing? Look at what he said in Philippians chapter 3. He says, whatever things were gained to me. Like, I've got all this stuff, right? So whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as a loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and I count them but rubbish so that I might gain Christ. That's what allows him on the way to Jerusalem with the knowledge of his coming suffering to say to the Ephesian elders, I'm going and I'm going to suffer, but it's for the glory of God that I'm going. He said it this way to the Romans. In Romans chapter 8, verse 18, he says, For I consider the sufferings of this present time not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. That's an eternal perspective that he has. In fact, Paul had such an eternal perspective that when he was locked in prison in Rome, he wrote to the Philippians. And when you read this, you feel that maybe Paul's a little suicidal, but that's not what he's talking about. He's in a prison in Rome and his life is being threatened and it would ultimately be extinguished there 
But what he's doing, he's writing to let the Philippians know that it's okay, that, that he's good with it. In, in fact, he's not so sure that he even wants to hang out on this earth much longer. Listen to what he says. Philippians chapter 1, verse 20. I trust that my life will bring honor to Christ whether I live or whether I die. He's like, I'm going to honor Christ in my death, and if I'm allowed to live, I'll honor Christ. For me, he says, living means living for Christ, and dying is even better. Get that for a minute. But if I live, I do more fruitful work for Christ. So I really don't know which is better, he says. I'm torn between two desires. I long to go and be with Christ, which would be far better for me. But for your sake, it's better that I continue to live. How heavy is that right there? That's heavy. He's like, guys, I'm locked in a jail and I might be beheaded at any moment and I'm totally good with it because it's a win-win any way I look at it. He's like, if I go, I get to go be with Jesus and that's actually what I want to do. If I stay, I'll be a benefit to you guys and I'll preach Jesus a little bit longer. That's heavy stuff right there. And then in reference to how Paul speaks in verse 24 in our text about finishing his course, when he writes to the Corinthians, he writes of the life that we now have in this world, and he compares it to the Olympic Games that were going on in Corinth at the time that Paul was around. And he writes of this life in comparison to running a race. And this is what he says in 1 Corinthians 3.23. He says, I do how much? Anybody awake this morning? Everything. I do everything to spread the good news and share in its blessing. He says, do you not realize that in a race, everyone runs, but only one person gets the prize? So run to win. Like, that's how we're supposed to think of our life. Like, when I get up in the morning and sit on the side of my bed, it's not like, oh, I wonder what fun things I can do today. It's like, I got a race to run today. Run it to win. And then he says, all athletes are disciplined in their training, and they do it for a prize that will fade away. Because in Corinth, when you won the race, they would put a reef upon your head. You win. Hey, here's your reef. What happens to a reef? Three days later, that sucker's gone, right? It rots and it's gone. He says, you guys, these athletes here in Corinth that are getting ready for an Olympic race, they run and train and work so hard to win a reef that's going to be rotten in three days. But what does he say? They do it to win a prize that's going to fade away, but we do it for an eternal prize. And so he says, so I run with purpose in every step. I'm not just shadow boxing. I like that, guys. I run with purpose in every step. Man, I want that. I want to be that guy. So it has a simple application for us as a church. Do we have that kind of eternal perspective? Do we have a heart and mind set on on eternity and upon the kingdom so that I'm going to run with purpose in every step? Do we think of our lives and our daily, you know, we call it the daily grind, but do we think of it as a race that we're running, literally running for the glory of God? 
And then we ask the question, right? How's, how's my race? How's your race going? You know, we've talked about this a ton around here. And this idea of kind of constantly renewing this eternal perspective in our hearts and minds, I often refer to it as our need to preach the gospel to ourselves, right? How many times have you guys heard me say, listen, we have this need to preach the gospel to ourselves? Because oftentimes as Christians, we think, well, the gospel is for the unsaved, right? It's for people that don't know Jesus yet. But the gospel has huge implications on the way that you and I live our life every single day. Because when we truly understand, when we truly get, when we truly reflect upon who Christ is and what he's done for us, we're going to want everybody to know a Savior this great, correct? Right? When we get it, when we understand that we were lost and helpless and hopeless and wretched in our sin, when we understand that we had actually offended a holy, holy God and we were actually under His judgment, we had a sentence upon us and no way to fix it on our own. And yet, in that condition, in spite of our sin and rebellion, Jesus Christ left heaven. He came to the world that He created and that we spoiled, and He lived a sinless life that would qualify him to take our sin upon himself. And then he did just that, didn't he? He hung on a cross, bearing every ounce of our sin and our shame and our guilt, and he paid for it there. He took my judgment. He took my punishment that was rightfully mine, and he paid for it. He died. He was buried. And on the third day, he rose to defeat death in glory. And now that Jesus Christ offers eternal life to anyone that will come to him by faith. And guys, all of it, all of it, the whole thing was out of love, sheer love. He loves us that much. He's nuts about you. Jesus is absolutely nuts about you. That is the greatest message that anyone could ever hear is the gospel of Jesus Christ. We are a people that are obsessed with information, right? We got our little phones and we're, we can't spend two seconds without some form of information coming in. But let me tell you something, there's no better information than the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we've got it. And the world needs it. And so you might think this morning, like, so, so what? What, what, are, what am I supposed to do? Am I supposed to go home, pack my bags, and go with Zach and Anna to, to the area where they're going? Maybe, I don't know. Maybe that's the call in your life. Might be, may not. I, I think the church and certainly world missions would be in a far different and better place today if all of the millions and millions and millions of, of people that sit in pews across our country every single Sunday would, would pray and ask the question and be willing to go and say, Lord, you want to send me? I'll go if you'll send me. Maybe it's you. Maybe you're supposed to go. Maybe somebody's hearing that this morning and you go, that, that's me, I need to go. 
But maybe God's telling you, you know what? You've got lost people in your neighborhood. You've got, you've got people that, that are in your workplace right next to you every day that need to hear that same gospel message. As, as Zach said earlier, lostness is lostness. In North Africa and in the North Shore of Oahu, lostness is lostness. But it comes down to the heart, doesn't it? Do we have it to go? Are we going to take this message to the Lord? The great, imagine that. We've got the greatest message where we have something that can save people's eternity. Are we going to take it and give it? I'm going to read just this one quote that I came across this week and we'll be done. David Brainerd was a missionary to uh, Native Americans in the 1700s. Obviously in the 1700s, missionary work among the Native Americans was tough business. And... um, and he, he knew that. And this is what he said. He said, here I am, send me. Send me to the ends of the earth. Send me to the rough, to the savage pagans of the wilderness. Send me from all that is called comfortable on earth. Send me even to death itself, if it be but in thy service and to promote thy kingdom. That's that same heart, isn't it, of Paul? not exclusive to Paul. It's a heart that every one of us can have because the spirit that he had is available to every single one of us. That caused Paul to say, but my life is worth nothing to me unless I use it for finishing the work assigned to me by the Lord Jesus, the work of telling others the good news about the wonderful grace of God. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we pray together as a church. And we ask that you would instill that heart in us. The heart that you gave Paul, the heart that you gave David Brainerd, the heart that you've given Zach and Anna, the heart that you've given every missionary that stepped on the field for the sake of your glory and the souls of the lost. Build that heart into us. Help us to turn away from all of the comfort and ease that that so easily entangles our hearts. May we not watch missionaries from a distance going, that's awesome, but may we become missionaries in everywhere we are because everywhere we go, there's people that need that precious message that you left heaven and that you came to earth and that you died and that you rose and that eternal life is now available to all that come to you by faith. Lord, may we be bold. I pray here for the Mission Church that that you would place your spirit upon us now. Make us bold. Make us effective. For your glory. For your kingdom. For your name. So together, as we worship you now, Lord, we say we love you. And we ask that you would strip all the things that are in our lives and that have entangled our heart, clear our vision, and give us your heart. In Jesus' holy name.